Thanks a lot, Bob, for this lovely uh, introduction. Um, first, I want to apologize very much for my uh, accent. It doesn't, not get, it doesn't get better as I get older, so I just warn you in advance. It's not like wine. It doesn't bonify. Uh, as you can see from the title I've picked up or I've chosen, Beyond Terroir is just to try to argue in a sort of provocative fashion about terroir and also by the same token about culture or cultural concepts, which are very familiar to uh, anthropologists. So I must, as, I must say, as a preamble, I'm very happy to speak to uh, an audience of anthropologists, because it's not very often. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm very happy to, uh, to, to be able to engage in a dialogue with, with you, and I will be, welcome you, your questions uh, at the end. <coughs> so in fact, starting, for, starting from an anthropological investigation of Burgundian viticulture, Uh, 25 years ago when I did my PhD on, on Burgundy and uh, going back to very recently where I was engaged uh, in a, a major bid that Burgundy is preparing for a, a UNESCO uh, world recognition I've been able to follow what's happening there on that site in the last 25 years which has been very fascinating uh, for the anthropologist I, I am. So the question which is central uh, in my uh, today's talk is to what extent does the study of terroir in Burgundy contribute to the debate on globalization, the production of locality, and I would emphasize the role of agency. So what are you doing as an anthropologist when you are feeling, interviewing, living with all these actors who have different discourses about what they are doing, their actions, and also how do you contrast that with the external image of Burgundy, which is very powerful. I was telling them that uh, only a week ago, that they've sat on their uh, prosperity for a number of years, without any thinking about what they were doing exactly. And I think it's interesting to try to um, look at it in terms of articulation, and it's what I'm going to do, uh, or to try to do uh, today in my talk. It is also extracted from a, an article which is currently uh, published, I think it's coming out at the moment, by the Journal of the Royal Anthropological Institute. So you will be able to have more uh, knowledge or more uh, material by looking at directly uh, at the article. So over recent years, as you are probably aware, place has come to play a central role in defining the character and quality of agricultural products as part of a response to globalization. And it's not only a French obsession, I just tell you that in advance, it's also become Americanized, uh, and lots of uh, East European countries as well are very keen to develop terroir as a process and place and site. As a result, a growing number of academics from a variety of disciplinary backgrounds and also different national traditions, I want to emphasize that because the nation is still one of the prime uh, means of, of discussing and, and uh, developing the concept of terroir, uh, and they have turned these national traditions, their attention to the concept of terroir. The literature ranges from in-depth analyses of particular products to sociological and cultural approaches to the study of governance and political processes and their trans, uh, translation into the international arena. So we have quite a broad range of topics uh, on the, uh, the, the term terroir, which have been analyzed. An analysis of terroir has permitted scholars to shed new light on the complex uh, relationship between different levels of governance and between production and consumption, and also social actors and uh, consumers. In social anthropology, 
It is only recently uh, that the debate uh, has started to center on debate. I think it's probably this last 10 years. And it has become uh, now terroir, one of the primary concepts of interest for a number of anthropologists uh, from Europe and also from America, uh, generally speaking. And I think there is a sort of debate uh, which has started to take place uh, between these two sides of the world, which I think is quite interesting. In their work, anthropologists have traditionally defined terroir as a system in which complex interactions are created between a whole series of human factors, including technical or collective uses, agricultural production, and I emphasize also physical milieu. So it's looking at it from various angles and trying to understand uh, by which process specific communities or groups are using specific milieu uh, and how the milieu has an impact on the definition of the product itself. Very generally, terroir was framed until recently, again in national terms. And you have quite a lot of work conducted in France, especially by the team Laurence Berard and Philippe Marchenet, which has exemplified the nature of the expertise involved in the recognition of labels, or what they call geographical indication, which is a more recent development of terroir at national and European levels. So it's a, a term, and it's a labelization which has now been uh, adopted uh, by the European Union, and is used as a political means of organizing territories and developing uh, economic uh, prosperity as well at local level. So terroir is thus referred to as a spatial and ecological concept as well that links together the actors, their histories, their social organizations, their activities, and most importantly, their agricultural practices. And you can see that there are already some problems in terms of enunciating this definition. Uh, because as anthropologists, we know that the concept of change and postmodernity has also uh, um, had an impact on these groups. And how are we going to define history of specific groups? Who is going to talk about that? Who is going to be able to represent this history? And how social organizations also have evolved uh, and especially also uh, in relation to the development of the, the European Union. So all these questions are at the core of the definition of terroir, and I think they are quite uh, interesting questions which are very often left to the side because they are quite difficult to tackle. And anthropologists uh, who are working directly uh, with labelization uh, groups uh, don't want to get into conflictual situations and sometimes try to come up with a consensual view of uh, what is meant or what is encapsulated about the history of a place and the product uh, defined through that. Interestingly enough, it is only recently that the subject has attracted the attention of American, American anthropologists who have examined the validity of terroir as, I emphasize, a social construction. I think one of the landmark publications is the book by uh, Amy Trubeck, entitled The Taste of Place, A Cultural Journey into Terroir, and published in 2008, which is interesting because it's a sort of um, interpretation of what, how the French have conceived and used the concept of terroir and how it could be translated into the American uh, context and how can it be useful to American food producers. 
And effectively, I think it's an interesting debate in terms of the applicability of the concept and how it could be stretched. The book offers the perfect illustration as well of various trends which have affected the concept of terroir in terms of understanding how it has shifted and how it's today defined or engaged with. And in addition, it provides evidence of major shifts in this conceptualization as she places greater emphasis on cultural processes. To give you quite a good idea how it does apply to uh, the example of Burgundy, I think I've been very lucky because actually one of the first books written on terroir was written on Burgundy. So he did his my task of understanding what they meant by terroir. And it's the famous book published by James Wilson. I think he was a British geologist. And um, the book was entitled Terroir, the role of geology, climate, and culture in the making of French wines. It was published in 1998, so it's quite recent. In the 10 years that elapsed between these two publications, Trubeck and Wilson, I think it's quite interesting to see how the debate, originally dominated by geologists, art sciences, how it was defined, has shifted to a more cultural stance, cultural understanding of the milieu, including in that not only the geology of the territory, but also how human societies were working with this territory. And I think what, what I've seen in the period of the 25 years, when I did the PhD 25 years ago, with wine growers in Burgundy, every time I mentioned terroir, they said, but terroir, it's there. You see, it stopped there, it starts there, and it's good here. That one is not good, and you can see the limits. And they had a very, very strong rhetoric and a strong belief in that conceptualization of geology. Very recently, when I went back and I was involved in the bid, the UNESCO bid, and I was one of the, the experts uh, to produce a report, I was struck by the discourse of my colleague, geologist, who was heading the project still, who was saying very clearly, well, actually, all the work we've done with archaeologists and geologists are proving that the geological foundation of a specific plot have nothing to do with quality and have more to do with the historical site and how it was used. And effectively, the work he did, which is published but not very publicized, uh, was uh, working on the Romane Conti, and I will give you some uh, images, which is one of the emblematic domains of Burgundy. They are, see, I don't know if you've drunk any bottles, very expensive up to 8,000 pounds the bottle, and even if you, are, if you are able to drink it, because it's impossible to get them. But very, very clearly, looking at the plot, they were able to see uh, that over a period of 2,000 years, it was used as a site to put all the waste of the various uh, places built. So very, very clearly, this concept of geological goodness uh, of the soil, you know, was starting to crumble in front of my eyes. And I said, I told you about that <laughs> even before I started digging the ground. So very, very clearly, this very strong uh, rhetoric of terroir is still dominating to some extent the, the minds of, of a number of wine growers, but has shifted gradually to a more cultural uh, conception. Again, another anecdote which is quite telling. Uh, when I tried to publish the PhD 25, 20 years ago, very clearly, 
The book was entitled Men and Wine, an Anthropology of Burgundy. We couldn't sell the book. And it was put in a small section where there was nothing on wine and men, and women as well. And today you go back to a bookshop in Bonn and you have huge sections devoted to men and wine and women and wine and children and wine. <laughs> and you have a very strong uh, cultural development of the concept of wine drinking culture, which has accompanied as well these shifts in relation to terroir. So I think it's very interesting to go in depth and try to explore what went on there. So however, to go back to Wilson and Trubeck's work, very few studies in relation to these two uh, landmark publications have actually examined the changing nature of terroir and especially have looked at the so-called French birthplace and the industry which provided these foundations, the wine sector. So it's what I've tried to do in this paper, it's to go back to the origins of the development of terroir and to question what has happened in that micro-local society and how, in fact, terroir has been deployed strategically by different groups of actors as well. So as any anthropologist, I needed to have a bit of theory added to that, and this is what the publishers say, you have to locate your uh, argument in a strong body of literature. So I went back to wine and globalization, but I didn't find very much to give, you know, or to ease my third of, of, of a theoretical conceptualization. And I find it quite difficult, because every time I was thinking of wine and globalization, I was quite puzzled by the way how it had been constructed uh, in French studies and in European studies so far, and especially this idea that wine is attached to a nation, whatever you look at in terms of production or in terms of consumption, rather than looking at wine as a commodity which has transnational level is constantly moving, is produced in one place, consumed in another place. And I was thinking about Burgundy and going back there every year and looking at it and thinking it doesn't change. The food is the same, snails, bœuf bourguignon, cheese, and nothing was offering a sense of modernity in that. And the villages were still there, you know, chocolate box villages, the wines were there, the terroir hadn't changed, there were no contestation of the order, of the social order. And I was thinking, wait, how can we engage with the theory of globalization seen very often as representing space, as a place of break, rupture, and disjunction, and disapadurais work, and, and uh, Jean-Pierre Varnier work as well. So in fact, looking at uh, this uh, development, I was thinking, to what extent can I uh, find ways of, of addressing this sort of feeling of permanence and continuity, and in fact, I was aware deep down that there were major changes there because the people I met 25 years ago were not anymore the same social actors. They have made quite a lot of money, they have been able to develop, their product has acquired notoriety, and they were changing there in terms of how they were defining who they were as wine growers, and they became more active uh, in terms of the social um, definition of their position in the space of the village, because the village were mattering quite a lot. So I went back to wine and globalization, and I thought within the erosion of the natural connection has undeniably taken center stage 
uh, in most analyses of globalization, leading to think of a world that has been globalized as a culture without space. And I wanted to engage with that. And I thought, wait, a concept which could be helpful in that case is the concept of isomorphism, of space, place, and culture, which fitted and which, according to anthropological theories, has not been very well researched. And I was thinking, well, if we look at this sense of isoformism, the role of actors is very, very crucial. And how can they be part of the equation and make me wonder how their role has transformed uh, the concept of terroir and what we mean uh, by Burgundy uh, wine. So I started with that framework in mind, looking at isomorphism of space, place, and culture. And by culture, I don't mean communities, I don't mean wine growers only, I mean individual in the sort of Bourdieuian sense of that, uh, by having uh, a, a specific role, uh, an impact on the society uh, they live in. So that's the sort of conceptual framework uh, of my uh, presentation today. I will argue that Burgundy and its terroir offer a remarkable example of the paradoxical effects of globalization and the complex interplay of global and local forces and how individuals mediate globalization at local level. So while most of the anthropological literature has focused on exacerbating the production of local differences or representing space, as I said, as a place of break, isomorphism is the key element to understand what's happening in terms of uh, the fit between local uh, and global. Yet, the local and the global feed upon and reinforce each other rather than being mutually exclusive. And the production of locality relies on imagination as well, mediated by local agency, but articulated differently by individuals, depending on their social positioning at local and global level. And what I'm trying to also argue uh, in relation to the paper. So if we take the example of Burgundy, it could be argued that the vineyard has altered little since the 1930s, sorry, in its physical nature, with a stable landownership pattern and a social structure characterized by divisions between a small number of large landowners and very wealthy landowners and the rest, small wine growers. Over the years, Burgundian producers have pursued a dual strategy, highlighting both place with the name of Burgundy, which has a very strong uh, resonance at international level, and also specificities with more plural strategies uh, hidden behind the term Burgundy. Either the village, I don't know if you are familiar with Pomar, Meursault, Volnay, puligny montrachet or even individual plots or wine growers. And I give you the example of DAC, Domaine de la Romane Conti, which is one example. I picked up a new trend, trend last week because we, they organized quite a big round table on taste and the future of taste. So it was interesting they asked the anthropologists to talk about the future of taste. <laughs> if it was possible, so it didn't start very well the, the talk, <laughs> uh, because I said I wasn't Nostradamus, so there was no uh, sense I could predict how consumers will uh, buy or not Burgundian wine. But what came out very, very clearly from the round table following that 
is that they had a striking problem with some of the producers who've decided to go through the route of develop, developing what they call wine with strong personalities, which apparently is a new trend that most Burgundian wine growers are uh, refuting or are refusing to see uh, as part of the terroir strategy. So I think it's interesting things are changing and are, are, uh, are changing in that sense. And I think it's, it's interesting to see it uh, in relation to what I was talking about. Yet, what uh, might appear to be production on a micro scale has international implications because an established local wine grower can become a global icon through his or her recognition in guides, such as that of Robert Parker or other wine guides. So a sense of permanence and fixity characterizes Burgundy and is even showcased through local wine tourism and the cultural mise en scène by selling authenticity, history, tradition in a very nostalgic fashion. But the French are quite nostalgic, I think. Very few changes are visible to the naked eye of the anthropologist returning for an annual field trip, and it could be argued that globalization has not visibly affected the local wine industry. I think it's probably how they feel as well. The facade of an unchanging place and what they constantly tell me during the interviews, a terroir blessed by God. They are quite religious, I must say, or they are strong. Uh, clerical, anti-clerical divisions there. Remain superficially convincing and the issue of how individuals mediate globalization seems almost incongruous in this context. However, like other sectors, the wine industry has been affected by the intervention of foreign corporations, banks, or individuals buying French vineyards and setting up shops. The global financial markets have until very recently provided vast quantities of cash to splash out on commodities such as wines, and Burgundy in this context is particularly sought after. Somewhat, paradoxically, globalization has added lustre to the distinctiveness of Burgundian wines, enlightening the savoir-faire of the wine grower or the uniqueness of the vineyard, while at the same time exerting great pressure from the standardization of wine production by promoting grapes such as Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, which, one, which are the two uh, major quality grapes produced there. The greater standardization of wine techniques and viticultural practices has led to the negation of terroir, and the awareness of this broader context is essential to understanding the strategies deployed at local level. So terroir is about protection, but it's also a tool to engage constructively with a global market and its literary, economic, and legal uh, manifestations. So to give you a sense of terroir in Burgundy, I thought it's quite helpful to have access to a map to start with, if you've never been there. To the, the area I'm, I'm talking about is the south of Burgundy, it's where the, the sort of richest uh, site is localized, and it's called Côte d'Or, Golden Coast. Uh, and in, in relation to that, I've got a better map to give you a sense of where it is. Yes. So the Burgundy wine region is divided in different wine regions, as you can see. They are all indicated Chablis. Chablis is trying to uh, quit uh, the Burgundy wine board, saying that they don't need Burgundy to sell their wines. They have become a mark uh, in themselves. So Chablis is trying at the moment to... Uh, leave them behind. 
you have the Châtillonnet, which is less famous for the quality of their wines. And then you have this emblematic place where I've been working. I was very privileged. I, have, I had a huge cellar because they quite like giving wine, <laughs> and very good wine. They are very, very generous people. So um, all that coast, you know, and it's located or it's differentiated between the Côte de Nuit and the Côte de Beaune. Beaune is quite the, the, the sort of epicenter uh, of the area as well. So it gives you a sense of that long uh, coast where you could find all these uh, incredible wines. To give you a sense of the economy as well uh, of Burgundy, it does represent only 3% of the French vineyard in terms of area of production and 3.3% in volume of French wine production. And you know, if you go uh, at worldwide level, 0.5 is not a lot. So I think it does explain to some extent as well the, the very uh, privileged economic situation they are in. However, what we've argued for the bid, and I agree with that, I think it's, it is true, it's a fascinating place because out of 20 kilometers, they've been able to construct differentiation every centimeters. <laughs> so diversity has been constructed from the 1930s very, very strongly, and you have 100 different denominations of origin, only okay, 16 Côte d'Or, it's enormous, Among the 60 denominations of origin, we've counted, and I think it goes up to more than that with the, 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 the UNESCO bid, we've counted up to 1,000 now Klima. Uh, and Klima, it's really the small piece of land located by the wine producers, and they've been given a specific name, and they, they've been known for two or three generations, and it's a very, very small plot, and you can just walk around, really. And it does produce a number of bottles extracted from that site with a specific name, a specific denomination of origin, and a sense of uh, link to a specific site or place. To my knowledge, there isn't, I mean, unless I, I don't know all the vineyards, but if you, you know, you won't find another vineyard like that in the world, where there is this extreme, extreme differentiation, obsession with differentiation, which has been... Uh, legally defined in the 1930s and which is now part of their strategy of promoting wine. And to give you a sense of how much, how millions, million bottles they produce, 193 in 2008, of which 48% were exported. So there is a big market for exportation. Uh, and I was looking at more precise uh, statistics recently, but there is also a regional market which is around 14%. So I think it's quite interesting to see how it's uh, organized. Among this production, there is a very strong hierarchy. And very often it's uh, presented as a sort of triangle. At the top of it, you will find what we call the Grand Cru. If you are lucky to drink one, because they are very expensive, um, they are not necessarily the best in terms of taste or quality. Don't be fooled by that. 1.4% uh, are Grand Cru. Then you have 46.6 communal and the premier cru, they are selling quite well. And then when you go down, they have huge problems in terms of selling the regional ones, uh, 52%. So I think it's interesting because there is no consensual or no collective sense of working together for Burgundy. There are lots of very individual strategies there, which, again, it's all about differentiation. 
So what I want to talk about today, or what I'm going to try to uh, show you, uh, is to uh, discuss the major shifts in terms of the terroir and how this concept of terroir has transformed and how it has become, uh, you know, a strategy or a means to develop uh, various uh, strategies, uh, individual strategies. So I think it's interesting to see how it has changed. So the first part of the, my talk will be establishing differences, and I quote a producer who said, uniformity would mean the death of Burgundy. That's encapsulated very well this sense that they've understood that differentiation diversity is the key, and that they have to build on that. And it wasn't new. It's something which was already there since uh, the 1930s. So I'm going to uh, try to take you uh, with me on that journey from 1995 up to probably the beginning of 2000, where there was a shift, where uh, wine growers were uh, constructing or were endorsing uh, the concept of terroir without any questioning. And I think it was, it was quite difficult as an anthropologist because to some extent you wanted them to be aware of the social issues but they were never discussed, they were invisible, they were never told to the anthropologist as a story despite the fact that they were there constantly because we are talking about lots of money uh, circulating as well. So I think it's, it's very interesting to see that sense of how the terroir as a monolithical concept became progressively uh, the object of um, engagement, denunciation, uh, and how wine producers decided to play an important role in that change and in reappropriating uh, the concept uh, of terroir. So as any anthropologist working on France, I think you need to go back to history and the work of historian is very, very important. In the case of, of uh, terroir in Burgundy, Again, I've been lucky because the University of Dijon has decided just after I left, after years of fieldwork, uh, they decided to, to create a research center on the history of wine and anthropology of wine. Uh, so I've benefited from a lot of work that uh, the young students have done, and I think they are very interesting uh, work done in relation to that. So the law of 1935, establishing the AOC, or denomination of origin, was promulgated in a period of social and economic crisis. And it privileged landowners, an artisanal model of production, at least what they call uh, uh, les usages locaux, loyaux et constants. So the sense that we were doing the same thing here, according to a traditional model, following a traditional system of cultivation and also uh, a natural conception of wine, because it was a time where if you wanted to buy and drink Burgundy wine, the frauds were spread everywhere, and you ended up drinking wine from Algeria or somewhere else. Uh, very, very clearly, it was an intense period of fraud, and the definition of wine at that time was fighting against all these frauds and defining wine as a natural product. Uh, it didn't mean that the fraud disappeared. They are still here around, I think, to some extent, but for different reasons. So I think what is interesting is to see that the law play an important role in uh, transforming the rules of the game and also the nature uh, of the collective uh, uh, representation of what it means by good wine. And in that, very, very clearly, uh, we could see how uh, it became a landmark 
uh, in the conceptualization uh, of terroir. The concept of terroir in France is traditionally associated with the birth of the Appellation d'origine contrôlée wine and the history of denomination of origin provided the key to understanding the French wine market and its definition of concepts of differentiated and also hierarchized qualities, this idea of hierarchy of wines, which is very, very important and quite complex as well. Uh, again, most of the historians writing on wine in France look at regional production rather than looking at the national comparative and there are lots of work which needs to be done which would be very interesting in terms of how the various regions competed uh, with each other. I think it is missing from the sort of uh, work produced uh, so far. The social structure of Burgundy was marked by a division at the time between vignerons, and I endorse vignerons, which is the word they are using, the term they are coining all the time, and by that they mean peasants, somebody who work the land. And very often it's not what they are telling you, it's also you check their hands, and you can check if they are real wine grower, or if they are telling you a fib, because lots of them are telling you a fib as well. They tell you, I am a vigneron. But in fact, there are people working for them and they don't go to the, the vineyard directly. And I think it's an important cleavage in terms of the social structure. It's how they look at each other. Owning plots, but selling the grapes to negociants, wine merchants, and wealthy elites, who, through the commercialization of, the, of their wines and the construction of a small niche clientele, sought to empower themselves by contributing to the recognition of a wine hierarchy based primarily on the commercial and historical reputations of specific plots. So the 1935 legislation consolidated this social hierarchy, opposing traditional families, and very often I go back to the kinship vocabulary, because in Burgundy we talk about lineages, you know, the same family, three or four generations, male, Define and it's the eldest very often which is given who is given the land and then money is given to uh, the other children, uh, despite an egalitarian system in uh, legal terms. So traditional families of local wine growers defined by their peasant roots to the emergent entrepreneurial wine elites who would exercise their leadership by setting local norms and standards of quality through the ideology of terroir. One of the most successful achievements of the period was the regulation of the wine market, as I said, by the wealthiest wine growers and landowners to the detriment of the previously dominant uh, negociant. What emerges from the historical analysis of the establishment of the legislation in Burgundy is that despite the strongly unified image of Burgundy viticulture, the wealthiest landowners, especially those owning a monopoly with one or two plots, Uh, dominated the reorganization of the market, defining notions of quality, taste as well, and geographical origin, and making sure that existing hierarchies were consolidated. Land ownership, and I still believe it's the case very strongly, is the key in that process, as well as the historical reputations of specific plots. By the middle years of the 20th century, terroir and the house legislation that underpinned it had become a powerful ideology supporting the economic and social hierarchy of Burgundian wines and leaving little space for contestation. So broadly speaking, in terms of the terroir discourse, we can see three major 
key periods. They are very difficult to separate because some of them were currently going on at the same time. But what we could underpin very, very clearly is that uh, these three periods were characterizing major changing in the way our terroir was conceptualized. So the first one, very briefly, was reinforced uh, by the reemergence of analogy and also the influence of geologists. And if you are familiar with the work, for example, of Emile Penault, who play an important role in terms of the wine culture in France in Bordeaux, but also in Burgundy, because lots of people were trained by him, it was this sense that wine education uh, had to be defined through the role of oenology as a science. And oenology became established in the 1970s and later developed very, very strongly. And lots of claims were made on their behalf. You still have lots of wine uh, experts who made a fortune on the fact that they were students of Emile Penault. So they've written several books and they go uh, for consultancy and they are, they are recognized as people who know about wine. Compared to the wine British market or the British market of wine consumption, in Great Britain you have uh, a norm which, is, which has clearly been established uh, through the Masters of Wine diploma in London with a clear sense, I think, of how you taste wine, how you define quality. In France, it's not that. You know, I go back to De Gaulle's quotation, how can you govern a, a, a country with more than 200 cheese? It's exactly that. You have 200 norms about wine tasting. Nobody knows exactly what a good wine is about. And very often when you interview consumers, they tell you why it's more about the people you drink with than actually what you are drinking. So again, in terms of the normative definition of, of wine, there were problems between, because it was very fragmented and quite complex uh, to look at. However, geology played an important role in trying to order or create sense uh, in relation to the definition of what a good wine. But if you go back to uh, Peno's book, uh, his introduction is starting by saying, first, I don't like wine. I don't drink wine. I taste wine as a professional. And if I have to define a good wine, I'm going to tell you there are at least five different kinds of ways of describing wine. So he goes back to sommelier, analogist, professionals. So then you, you are starting to understand that's a complex world. Okay. Uh, so geological determinism became quite an efficient trump card in the recognition of quality wine, successfully obscuring as well the socio-political construction that made their legal emergence possible a few decades earlier. And also it was less contest... It, was, it didn't give the way of... Or it didn't give the possibility of contesting that order. It had been defined through legislation. It was there. We leave that in peace. And if you are lucky to be born with a nice plot of land, then you have a good wine. And clearly that sort of hierarchy uh, was very difficult to um, engage with 25 years ago. The second major shift in relation to that was from the end of the 1990s onwards up to really the sort of beginning of 2000. And I saw that very, very clearly because the people I worked with in the 1990s, a number of them inherited very, very wealthy domain, so with a number of, of plots. 
But very often, they didn't want to do the job of becoming wine grower. At the time, it wasn't as trendy as now. Uh, they were not keen of, on going, you know, and working, cultivating the, the, the vine and making the wine. And I ended up as an anthropologist to work and to live with them for a number of years uh, with these people who were located on the edge of the group. They wanted to integrate the group, but they couldn't. One of them was a woman, no women with wine at the time. It was very difficult for a woman to be recognized at the level of the village. There was a case where the two brothers nearly killed themselves in order to divide what they inherited. Uh, there was another case where there was a crisis because the young wine grower wanted to become a hairdresser, but he had to take, you know, uh, again the vineyard and work on it. So all the cases were very on the merge. Another one was an actor, and he didn't want to go back. So it was very interesting because they were the only one who gave me or opened the door and said, come close the door, and we do think nobody can see what we are doing, and I did quite a lot of illicit things at the time with them. So I think, I mean, in terms of making wine. Uh, and uh, what was interesting from that is these groups uh, today, they've all become the pillar of the community. All these three, four, four families. Their children are now, you know, are, have taken, uh, again, the domain, and are following, are studying wine or enology, and very often their positioning has become central rather than being on the, the verge of the group. And I think it's interesting that. So the previous social structure that I've talked about in the 1990s was increasingly challenged by a widening access to higher education, the difficulties of ensuring the transmission of the domain within the lineage, and finally the arrival of new kinds of investors, the banks, for example. The wine market also experienced a period of greater prosperity which was linked to the emergence of an international clientele of discerning consumers. Cultural knowledge followed these economic trends, accompanied by the background of a new French wine drinking culture orientated towards quality wine. And I, you know, I don't know if you know well the French wine consumption, but uh, it's quality wines which is still uh, increasing, while normal, enfin, everyday type of wine is going down, or alcohol drinking is going uh, down. So I think it's quite interesting to see how it has been built uh, as well as a, a social uh, edifice and cultural edifice to encourage uh, consumption of quality wine. During that time, and I've seen that very clearly with the four domains, but also a number of people I interviewed uh, and I followed, uh, there were problems. Most of the young wine growers told me, well, I'm doing exactly what my father used to do. I'm not changing the technical aspect. So I'm following what was done. It's all, it's all written in the little diary. I do exactly the same. And then when I was working with them more in depth in their te techno technological knowledge, I was quite gobsmacked by the fact that they didn't have this sense of understanding really what was going on. Some of them didn't do the Diplôme National d'Enologie, they did the École de Viticulture, Viticultural School, Local Viticultural School, and their, their knowledge about their wine was quite not very developed, which was quite, I think, a problem in terms of understanding what they were doing. Also, one of the things which was very, very interesting, and it wasn't only with the young generation, but also their fathers, every time I was taken to wine testing in the cellar, and especially if I went to, with other professionals, we asked them, what do you think of your wine? Can you describe them? 
and they had no discourse at all about taste. It was absolutely absent. They don't like to talk about wine, really, most of them. They do their wine, but they, have, they find it very difficult, so they are listening very often about what you say, and they use that in, in return in their brochure. But <laughs> very, very often, there was an absence of vocabulary on taste, and I interviewed one, one of the, the, the respectable wine merchants, Pierre Poupon, uh, in the 1990s, and he, he, he told me that apparently he started to have wine tasting organized at the uh, village level uh, in the 1980s. And again, wine growers came and they said, oh, we are not going to, to taste your wine. We can't comment on that. They had lots of reticence in tasting each other's wine. And you had this sense that they were, you know, sitting on the terroir ideology and our denomination of origin, selling but they didn't know exactly what they were selling, really. The whole situation has completely changed. Now, very often, they are much more educated. Lots of them have uh, done the uh, Diplôme National d'Onologie, which is a difficult diploma. Lots of them are traveling. Lots of them talk about their wine very often, and they have a sense of where they, they want to go. And I think they have appropriated the, cult, enfin, the technical sphere, and they have a sense of where they want to go with their product. And I think it's a very strong shift. So they are not talking so much now in terms of the terroir ideology. There are lots of pieces emerging from there very, very clearly. And they are talking about my wine, the wines I'm making, the wine with a strong personality. So there is a sense that more differentiation has uh, come or has emerged uh, as a result as well of these last 20 years of prosperity and uh, acquisition of more knowledge. And you know, you could, I can give you other examples where it is very clear that it has happened uh, very, very strongly. So in, that, in relation to that big shift in terms of the ideology of terroir, in 2000, uh, they decided, when I'm saying they decided, I will tell you more in details and it will explain, they decided to go for a UNESCO uh, worldwide uh, recognition. And they decided to set up in 2002 what they called the Association pour la reconnaissance des climats en Bourgogne. Interestingly enough, the person behind uh, uh, the UNESCO bid is indeed the wealthy landowner uh, of Domaine de la Romane Conti, of the DAC I was talking about, Aubert de Vilaine. And yes, if you are imagining what's happening, what has happened in the last uh, 20 years, if everybody's playing the card of differentiation, then the people at the top have to find other means of differentiating themselves more from an increase in terms of quality, and that's sure, that the wine is better than what it used to be, and also in terms of, uh, you know, making sense of who you are as a wine grower in today's world. And I think the names very often are, are quite a sort of new way of branding what you are uh, producing. So if you are asking same story, same actors or different actors, I would say, no, it's not the same story. It's a different story uh, which is told today. And they are different actors the land, wealthy landowners and elites are still playing a very, very important role. But cleverly enough, they are still relying upon 
the terroir discourse. And I remember when we were, I was contributing to various, uh, to the various stages of the UNESCO bid, and we were trying to work with Aubert de Villene, Domaine de la Romane Conti. And we were saying, well, what about, you know, Burgundy as a very individualistic uh, type of society? And also, you know, how the wine where are the wine growers? Are they behind you? What's happening? And he used this quotation, which I thought was, was quite telling uh, about what's happening there. Uh, if I've put it there, I go back to it, I've got it here. He said, but there is no such things as wine growers in the plural here. There is only one wine grower in Burgundy. And it's me, and this other domain, the domain Lafont in Meursault, which is also a very wealthy uh, wine grower, very famous domain, Pulini, uh, Morachan, Meursault, white wine. And very, very clearly, this elitist construction, which is, uh, which is behind Uh, the UNESCO bid, uh, is trying to empower again uh, themselves through uh, the terroir uh, rhetoric. And again, the terroir is an element which has played and which plays an important role in relation to that. Uh, again, Aubert de Villene is very keen to uh, be photographed in front of the vineyard, and I will show you some of the pictures, where the natural conception of wine, nature, God Uh, God bless nature to some extent, is played very, very strongly. And I've got an example I want to show you. I've taken the pictures a few weeks ago. It's in front of the Romane Conti plot, which is a small site. Uh, you can go around. And uh, what is interesting is it's become completely religious. So you have lots of Japanese and Chinese people watching and taking pictures. And you have an indication out here. You come to visit this site, and we understand. We ask you, nevertheless, to remain on the road and request that under no condition you enter the vineyard. Sacralization of the domain, which explains why you pay so much money. Does it? I don't know. And the second picture as well, deliberately, you know, it's how we work. And I've just, they've just told me that they are using horses again, with women on it, not men. And uh, to, uh, to uh, cultivate the vineyard. So, and Aubert de Villene is very keen to play that card of nature is giving me everything, I'm not doing everything. Well, it's true, he's not doing everything because some other people are doing it. But <laughs> actually, it's this natural conception of how the, the grapes are uh, coming to a life and how it transforms into this fantastic product which is worth a huge amount of money. Uh, so I think it's quite interesting. So we could ask the question, is climate uh, in relation to uh, that sort of strategy and a, a new point of juncture? As the example of Burgundian climate demonstrates, beneath the seemingly harmonious discourse of terroir lies a far more heterogeneous and imaginative, you have to give them some credit, society. Place can be a powerful marketing tool in the wine industry and the sort of construction of space that emphasizes micro-level distinctiveness and the resultant products in one powerful strategy to exploit monopoly rents of these unique places. These unique places, if recognized by the UNESCO, will undoubtedly ensure that the natural connection between place and culture remains at the core of what define Burgundian wines 
in an international context. In Burgundy, I would argue this has been pushed to the extreme by the landowners, as the notion of climat represents a further step in claiming distinctive quality. While terroir remains the trump card at local, national, and global level, the campaign for UNESCO recognition by using the climat argument introduces a new set of values and meanings which embrace international preoccupations and ensure that the heritage factor will add further value to the place and the product. So a number of, con of conclusions could be drawn, shifting strategies, so the sort of latest development with this discussion on wine with strong personalities, is it a new point of juncture? I think I'm going to, to do quite a lot of fieldwork on, on that, I've decided, because I think it's interesting, because it's associated as well with desacification and technical manipulation during the, the, the process of, of winemaking. So I want to explore that in depth, because there are things going on there. I don't know if they are legally recognized or not, and I think it's interesting. And it's also about globalization as an ambiguous process and complex process. Images, metaphors, playing essentialism while masking social changes or how to construct quality, and for who? Because we don't talk very much about the consumers, but there is a, a major issue attached to that. And what do we mean by quality wines? I would be happy to take questions. It's a complex social field. I don't think you could define quality, uh, honestly. I think it's a very subjective uh, question. And I've given you a sense of the sort of Burgundy uh, uh, site. You have the Clos which is quite well known with the Confrérie des Chevaliers du Tadvin, which is an international confraternity. The Clos you have the banner strategy, which are very often presented clearly on the labels. One of the things I haven't talked about is the vintage, and we were talking about it actually last week, saying that it is disappearing. People don't buy very often now all the wines, and they don't keep wine anyway. <laughs> so I think it's interesting to see how this conception, you know, 1845 Clos Vougeot, I haven't drunk that one, but I've drunk some quite old ones, which were amazing. And this climat, to give you a sense, is very localized, you know, that belongs to one person, that belongs to another person. You can read it by just looking at it. It's very, very clear and the knowledge, the skills, the competencies, the history of the place is quite easy to read. And they take their small children when they are four, very often along, and they, they teach them how these uh, plots uh, are localized. And by the way, it's Pernan Vergelès, so it's not one of the emblematic villages. And that's what we call, because it's very important, the aesthetic of the, the, the vineyard for them, what they call Belle Vigne. Again, it was something they, they constantly endorsed 25 years ago. Today, it's less something pre uh, relevant in their way of, of looking, cultivating the, the vine because nature has to be uh, reintegrated, so they are going to leave it more natural, growing a bit everywhere as well. So there are different elements there which are quite telling of the changing happening in relation to terroir. Thank you very much.